Born October 27th, 1946 in Regina, Saskatchewan, Jack David has a BA in history from UWO and an MA in English from Windsor. Taught English first, then book publishing at Centennial College from 1976 to 2001. Started the journal Essays on Canadian Writing in 1974 and ECW Press in 1979. ECW has 500 books in print and has published more books about Canadian writers and their works than any other press. Has edited over 40 anthologies and critical works. David has served as chair on three occasions of the Literary Press Group, president of the Organization of Book Publishers of Ontario, and on council at the Association of Canadian Publishers. His hobbies include bridge, poker, tennis, and reading books about publishing history. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. Essays on Canadian writing. That's how it all started? No. Okay. <laughs> it began earlier when I was a grad student and I was writing reviews for Quill and Choir. I began to publish the essays that I was writing as a grad student as a key to getting me an academic position, I thought. And one day we were in Frank Davies' poetry class. In fact, Frank Davy has just written a book for us about Tish and is currently writing a biography about B.P. Nickel for us. So the wheel turns. It's the first issue of ECW had a feature article by me about BP Nickel. So now we're in 2010, and that was 1974. In Frank's class, we were told by somebody that the English Graduate Students Association had access to money that the larger Graduate Student Association had at York University, and that last year, the English Graduate Students Association had held a beer party. And I said, why don't we start a magazine? That's where it started. The question is why I said that. And I thought about this over the years. And I'm still not sure. In looking back, when I was at camp, Camp New Moon, I started a newspaper called The New Moon Sun. And when I was at camp with a friend of mine in Montreal, north of Montreal. Camp meaning you were what, 12? No, 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 I was a counselor. It was a B'nai B'rith camp, but it wasn't called B'nai B'rith. Wooden Acres. And my friend Lazar Sarna and I started a newspaper called Camp. Camp then had two different meanings, still yeah. does, I guess. And we got the first issue out. We had a literary supplement. And <laughs> trying to think of some camping titles. The feature story we ran was how unhappy we were with the camp director, who then told us we couldn't do any more issues of camp. <laughs> a shit-disturbing streak. Yes. It seems to me I've always had this underlying most stuff that I do. Okay. So would you say that's an underlying philosophy of ECW yes. Press? Yes. To stir up a little bit of shit? Yes. And there's some good examples early on in the journal magazine. We were publishing, at one point, translated articles by French Quebec critics about Quebec writing because we felt an obligation to convey the bilingual nature of the country. And after we had done a couple of these, and it was apparent that nobody ever read them, we put a note in a very long one about halfway through. And we said, if you get this far, send us a note and we'll send you $50. <laughs> no one ever did. <laughs> A reader survey that came back with a result that wasn't that thrilling to you. We did that, and we, we published a lot of books. Uh, John Metcalf, our common friend, knew that we would publish pretty much anything. This was back in mid-70s then? Yeah, late 70s, early 80s. The journal... Started in 74. 74 and went, what, for five years? No, no, it, it, it goes forever. It still, still continues on. Okay. Yeah. But not under my ears. I'll cut that out. <laughs> so the journal still exists, yes. but you parted company with your partner or left the firm and set up ECW? No. I 
stopped being actively involved with the journal about 92 or 93, when the parenthesis appeared without a closing parenthesis in various titles of, of the articles. And I said, that's it for me. I'm out of here. Was it your initiative to set up uh, ECW then? Jointly. It was for okay. the second issue of the journal, Robert Lecker came by and he had an article about John Newlove and the bibliography of John Newlove, which matched up with my article about BP Nickel and my bibliography of BP Nickel. We shared common concerns. We were interested in Canadian writing and Canadian poetry. We were interested in bibliography. We were interested in the history of Canadian literature. And it turned out we were both entrepreneurs and we were both interested in business. We didn't know that at the time, but in fact that's what happened. Uh, if you're entrepreneurs, you chose a pretty tough road to hoe. It was egregiously stupid. If we had wanted to make money, we would have stopped right then in our PhD program, gone immediately to law school, set up practice and made a million dollars because we would have been terrific lawyers. Instead you became terrific publishers. We became good publishers but not terrific publishers. The reason we were good publishers was we were publishing in an area where nobody wanted to buy the books. And the fact that we managed to survive was laudatory was enough. Laudatory, yeah. The fact that we managed to continue publishing books about Canadian writers all the way through into the early 90s, even though we had to borrow money and we were doing all kinds of weird things, that was the quality of our publishing program. Okay, so if the philosophy is, is a bit of a shit-disturbing philosophy, how would you define that in terms of acquisition of titles yes. or in the kind of writing that you looked for? What? It was right through from acquisitions to how we chose our cover material, to the titles, to the kind of promotion that we did. Okay, explain that. The first obvious example was John Metcalf's Kicking Against the Pricks. He was uncertain about that title. He wanted to use another title. And that was the title of one of the chapters in the book. And I said, I said, this is your title. Even for John, he was a bit dubious. But I thought, boy, what a great title that is. And it also had the biblical overtones and his notion of taking on McLennan and Callahan and Robertson Davies and poking the shit out of them. Yeah, all the old volcanoes. So uh, we did that and we became known as a place where you could send material that would be offensive. Not for the sake of being offensive, I assume. No, because that was a brilliant book. We continued and if you take a look on your right, you'll see the books that we published. Last year we published a book by Colin Thatcher called Final Appeal. From prison? From prison. He's out of prison. He got out in 2006. Okay. But it was his version of how he got railroaded. And he still proclaiming his innocence. Absolutely. Never changed his mind. And if he had, and if he expressed remorse, then he would have been out of jail a lot earlier. But he never did. He did it. He didn't do it. Not sure. But the book was his chance to say these things. And no other publisher would have done that book. So you're giving him uh, his voice. I gave him his platform. And he wrote the book himself. Great publicity. And we ended up selling 7,000 copies which is a bestseller in Canada. Okay, most of those in Saskatchewan. <laughs> and then in May, before the book was published in September, Saskatchewan government decided that they didn't want Colin Thatcher to get the proceeds from the book. So they passed a law in two weeks at the end of the parliamentary session saying that the proceeds of criminal activity, when published, the author cannot receive the royalties. And then they prosecuted in the fall, and there was a hearing, and uh, they won. The government won. A surprise. So Colin had to pay back his advance, which was 5000 And then in May, when we sent out the royalty statement, there was another 8000 that was owing to him that went to the Saskatchewan government. So if we, if we go from kicking against the pricks to Colin Thatcher, often we do those kinds of books. And are you most proud of those books? I'm very proud of those books because they are examples of 
people speaking their mind in a direct way and stirring controversy. Being true to themselves. Whether Colin had deceived himself or not, I don't know. But it was a book that, that garnered a lot of attention. So we do that kind of book. And at the same time, we'll do a book about Taylor Swift. And it's essentially a pop piece aimed at teenagers about how great a singer and what a great life she's had at the age of 19. Well, that you got to pay the uh, bills. Uh, no? see, that philosophy I don't think is accurate. Our goal is to make sure that every book at least breaks even. If the Taylor Swift book, for example, there's no public support for that. Any book that we do by an American author, there's no government support at all. So when we do a book like that, we have to be able to compete directly in the American and the world market to make money. But if we do a poetry book, and we know we're only going to sell 250 copies, then we have to have some kind of government support to be able to do it. So if you take profit and loss statement for each book that we do, and you say Colin Thatcher's book sold 7,000 copies. You didn't get Canada Council grant for that, did you? We did. You, you get it as part of your block grant. The Saskatchewan government might petition the federal government to take that back. What I was going to do was I was going to enter the Saskatchewan Book Awards with the Colin Thatcher book and let them stew a bit. And the only problem I had with that, and the reason I pulled back ultimately, was a friend of mine is the chair of the Saskatchewan Book Award that year, and I didn't want to embarrass her. She would have had a very difficult time deciding whether to admit it or not. So, in effect, what you're doing is giving, as you say, a platform. You're exercising, what, the rights of these authors to be heard, but more than that, you're helping them to get messages out that you think are valuable. In some cases, valuable. In some cases, stories that would not otherwise be told, whether from the right or the left. We did a book on Ernest Manning and Preston Manning, and how Preston Manning was so similar to Ernest Manning in many things that he did. And we weren't trying to justify the right or the Social Credit Party in Alberta. We were trying to tell a Canadian story. So more commonly, we'll do books from the left. We did a book called Mike Harris Made Meet My Dog, which was a pin. That that a great title. A pin that the, the labor guys used to wear when they were protesting Mike Harris. So I hated Mike Harris, and I purposely did that book. And it's not that I love Preston Manning, but I thought it was a pretty interesting story about the roots of Alberta socialism, which turned into social credit, which turned into right-wing conservatism. Well, it's full circle, too, though. It started off as evangelism. Yes. So, uh, Ernest Manning had the biggest radio show in Alberta. He was a radio star, and it was all tub-thumping about about Christianity. Maybe I could put on my Sigmund Freud mask and ask you, is this some sort of desire for attention that came out of early childhood or like what is it where, where do you think it comes from i don't get the attention it's not it's not directed at me i'm a conduit for the authors okay. occasionally i'm interviewed but what what's behind your love of stirring up shit <laughs> it's it's just bread in me and it's not really stirring up shit that's putting it down it's really uh, just making things a bit livelier in this country i suppose i guess in some ways i'm not trying to enliven the country i'm i'm trying to allow authors to have their say that's pretty much what I like to do. You were mentioning earlier that of the 500 books that you've published, about 10% of them may be fiction or poetry. Is that right? Yeah, maybe in that range. Why? Why 10%? Yeah, why not 50%? The nature of the publishing list has changed over the years. And if you take a look over my right shoulder, you'll see that we began with a journal, and then we did a bibliography series. In fact, the bibliography series is an example of trying to liven things up. We decided that we were only going to do major writers, so we called it the Annotated Bibliography of Canada's Major Authors. And a lot of people took offense because here are these two young guys who were deciding who the major authors were. Like, what the fuck did they know? 
How could they get away with this? And when we decided in 1979 or 80 that Margaret Atwood and Michael Ondaatje were major authors, it's 1979. People said, they haven't published anything. They're not dead. And we applied for a grant to get it done. And one of the responses we got was from an old fuddy-duddy who said, they aren't dead. (laughs) And who are these people? It wasn't that we were so prescient that we were able to figure out that Margaret Atwood and Michael Ondaatje were going to be big stars. But they were very good writers. Well, you just figured they should be there because you thought they were good writers. Yep. And, yeah, who's to tell you otherwise? Well, we were told otherwise because we didn't get a grant. But you did it anyway. But we did it anyways. If you're doing a bibliography of them and they haven't written anything, what's, what that must be a pretty thin book. A lot of the stuff that we did in the bibliography series, and we didn't have any training in bibliography. We were trial and error guys. We decided that there would be two sections. There would be primary works and secondary works. And we thought about this as grad students in, in English, and that the primary works were everything they had written, whether it was a review or a poem or a story or a piece of critical work or a newspaper article. And we came to Robertson Davies, the bibliographer had to track down every single review that Robertson Davies had written in the Peterborough Examiner. It's a huge, huge file. So when we came to figuring out what to do, what we wanted was not just works that had been published about the author, but annotated works about the author. So that someone who was doing a PhD thesis, like we were, could turn to the Robertson Davies bibliography and see not just the listing, but also a paragraph that summarized what was in that review or in that critical article. Serve a useful purpose, obviously. To the extent that bibliographies are uh, there for collectors versus scholars. Yes. These were for grad students. You saw a need for this because there was nothing available. Yeah, there was nothing around. So when I was at the Learned's one year, and someone came up to me and said, "Uh, are you Jack David? And I said, yes. And I figured, she said, I just wanted to thank you. I said, Oh, thank you, thank you for thanking me. For what? And she said, that Robertson Davies bibliography you did, that saved me two years on my thesis because you had done all the searching that I had to do. So we did it for ourselves. And at that time, the Canadian library system was still buying books. So we were able to get in not just the 25 university libraries and the 25 college libraries, but we were able to get into the public libraries and we were able to get into some high school libraries. And that was enough to sustain the project. Filling a need. It was. It was filling a need at that point. It was a need that we invented, but it was still a need. Well, it was a need that that you personally experienced and felt that this was something that others would benefit from. So you went through a bibliography phase. Yeah. Have you kept up with the bibliographies or not? No. Why not? For one, I am no longer directly involved in the business of teaching Canadian literature. My ex-partner still is, but the finding tools are so far advanced from what we had that it's no longer necessary. Did that take up all your time and then, no. you know, you sort no. of... No, we were working on the journal. We were working on the bibliography series. Initially, the bibliography series, we had no intention to, to become publishers. We had a contract with a company called PMA, Peter Martin Associates. This was a company that was formed in the 1970s. And Carol Martin, his wife, who then went to the Canada Council after that, was running the company. And we went to her because she had done a bibliography of, or a reference work of some kind. And she said, yes, I'd like to publish this. And went to the roof bar at the Park Plaza, the famous roof bar, and we signed a contract for which we got a $1 advance. It was a great moment. <laughs> it's not about the money. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and so we sent out letters to scholars and librarians 
and bibliographers of any sort. And we said, how would you like to do bibliography on whoever it was going to be? Margaret Lawrence. And some wrote back and said they would, and some said they wouldn't. Some said, try this person. And then we gave the deadlines, and then we came up with the format, this primary, secondary format, which I don't think has ever been duplicated because we made it up. But what is it? Primary works, secondary works with annotations. Yeah, that's nothing new. Well, take a look at it. You'll see how it's different. I mean, obviously, a bibliography is a listing of all the works by and about this person. And all the different types of ways that writing appeared. Yeah, but not that many variants like in a critical biography. We did Carl Spadoni's bibliography of Stephen Leacock. All the variants and all the descriptions and what the folio size was. Okay, I see. You were basically doing it again to save grad students time. Yes. So that was the focus. It wasn't your traditional uh, anal... Okay. No, it wasn't like that. So uh, let's scrub that anal remark, too, because I don't want to have <laughs> all, all the bibliographers out there. So we began to get these bibliographies coming in. We assigned it to somebody. Okay, and you paid them. We paid them like 100 bucks or 200 bucks or something. For the whole thing? Yeah. Well, we didn't have any money. And she gave us a dollar advance. So this uh, person basically was just wanting to have their name attached to the bibliography, or yeah. maybe they'd done all the work already. Might have done some of the work, which is how we found them. But we're interested in the same thing we were interested in, which was... The common good. Establishing the groundwork for studying Canadian literature. That was our primary activity through the 80s. That's what we that's, wanted to do. That's laudable. Yeah, it was laudable. The bibliographies came in, and we I take them into Carol Martin. And Robert at that time was teaching at the University of Maine at Orono. And I began to pile them up, and there was a, a radiator in the corner. She was on the third floor of an old house where the Holiday Inn is now on Bloor Street. And it got to be maybe a foot high. And she looked at it. One day I was in there, and she said, I don't know how we can possibly publish this. And I said why not? And she said, well, we're not in very good financial shape, and this is a huge job, and who's going to edit these things? And she could imagine the typesetting problems that would follow. So she said, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do it. So Robert and I thought, well, we're fucked now. I made these commitments to all these people. What are we going to do? I take it you didn't do any business with Carol Martin after that. (laughs) Well, I had to, because she then became the literature officer of the Canada Council. (laughs) So you basically undertook it yourself? First we thought, who else could do it? We didn't want to become publishers, and we went to U of T Press, thinking that they might do it. But the process at the University of Toronto Press is very long and very arduous, and involves getting all the stuff in, all the stuff edited, sent out to readers, getting readers' reports, revising the readers' reports, waiting two years, and then maybe getting it published. And we're not the kind of guys who wanted to wait for that stuff. So we said, well, we published the journal, and by this time we had also done anthologies for other companies. We were teaching CanLit. And we decided that there was a need for CanLit anthologies. And we then hired ourselves out, myself and Robert, as editors for various projects. And the projects were things like... Yeah, well, Introduction to Poetry, British, American, Canadian, HRW. Quote well, Reinhardt Winston. There were a lot of books by Norton that were introductions to poetry, but they were pretty much either American or British or both. But nobody had a strong Canadian component. And so that's what we did. We figured we could get these books used on all those intro courses. And the editor at Colt agreed with us. And they had an infrastructure in place to market this to all the universities. Exactly. So we collected the poetry. Definitely an evaluative uh, approach to choosing who gets in and who gets out. No. We did this for two reasons. One was we wanted to Camlet taught at intro level. You mean it wasn't? First, that's what we wanted to do. But how would we get a company to agree to do such a thing? We looked around for all the Camlet courses, intro courses, that had big enrollments. And then we looked around for the prof who actually was the one who made the determination of which textbook was used. And then we approached that prof and we said, how would you like to edit a section of this book? So the schools we have, 
Ottawa, U of T, Alberta, BC, Western, Saskatchewan, Simon Fraser. And once we got each of these people to agree, then they got to make the selection of the poetry. So there's prestige, they get freedom and prestige. Yes, and we get Canada into intro courses. You get Canada into textbooks that are used for intro courses, because yes. they were being taught. Yes. It was being taught, but each prof had to pull their own stuff together, I assume. Is that the, what you're saying? There were general intro courses, and then specifically Canadian courses. But to get into that huge first-year course, English 100, whatever... With a Canadian component. Yes, that's okay. what we wanted to do. You basically used your Canadian component, and then you also included English and American in there as well, but used... Canadian as the draw to get them to what? Abandon American and British? Abandon the Norton. So it, you're using the flag as well? Yes. It's pretty smart. Yeah, it was very smart. Uh, the books didn't do that well. That wasn't so smart. <laughs> Who knew? We never know that. Theoretically, it was pretty smart. Yeah. We followed that up with Intro to Fiction, where it wasn't as obvious that the Canadian stuff was in there. Holt printed that. Yes, because we couldn't do a book like this. We weren't equipped to typeset it, we weren't equipped to print it, and we certainly weren't equipped to market it or distribute it. So when you take a look down the list of stories, and they're alphabetical, you see Margaret Atwood, Clark Blaze, George Bowery, Morley Callahan, uh, Rajan Ducharme, and so on. This was a more subtle infiltration of the intro fiction course by putting the Canadian stuff in with John Cheever. Was that more successful? No. <laughs> Okay. It was not. But Brilliant idea, though. Yeah, a great idea. But then, uh, we did these two, and here we have a set. New Press was bought by General Publishing, and a guy named Ed Carson, who went on to have a pretty big career in Canadian Penguin. publishing, so Penguin, among other places, Ed approached me and said, I've got this paperback imprint. Let's see if we can sell some books of course material. So we said, sure. What we did in this case was we went to individual scholars and we said to them we'd like you to do the selection of fr scott's poetry write a little article about them and do a little bibliography and we'll pay you 50 bucks or 100 bucks or something so that we didn't pick any of the poems we picked the scholars who picked the poems they were able to pick stuff that nobody else would pick it wasn't usually the traditional poems. Why not? Because they knew the canon so well. They're what they thought was the best play, yeah. and then that was what? Different from traditional? Very often different from traditional selection. Okay, and the traditional selection would have come from abroad? No. It, it would have come from other people who were doing anthologies. But these books were sold for five ninety five, And that undercut the competition. <sighs> the books were put out, I think, in 1982. Ultimately... The second volume sold over 100,000 copies, and this one sold over 60,000 copies. Wow, that's a bestseller. And uh, we didn't see a nickel from these until all the permission fees had been paid off. Yeah, I was going to say. So it wasn't until probably 1990 or 91 that we saw the first return as editors. But you co-published it. You, I mean, your yeah, ECW we, is on there. We did that for two reasons. One was because we wanted some credit for doing this kind of stuff, and two, because we thought it might be grantable. <laughs> that's Canadian? Yep, very Canadian. So we did a bunch of these books at the same time as we were doing the journal and the bibliography and Canadian writers and their works and the individual monographs. Canadian writers and their works, what's that? That's a big series that we invented to establish the groundwork of Canadian literature. And each of these books... Wait a minute, I thought you said that was, that uh -huh. was what the bibliographies were doing. Yeah, you bet. Each of these books, 22 volumes, introduced by George Woodcock, deals with individual people following the same format. So if you want an intelligent... More than a praisey, an intelligent article about important Can Canadian writers. Yes, then you turn to these things. Were they evaluative or simply descriptive? Both. 
the evaluation took place because Robert and I decided who was going to be in and who wasn't. But no one craps on these. No, it's serious, intelligent criticism. But typically it's positive. Typically, yeah. And again, these were uh, successful because... It hadn't been done before. It hadn't been done as well. It won't be done as well again. And part of the reason was that every single fact in those things was verified. We not only got the writer to write it, we got a verifier to verify it, and we got a copy editor to copy edit. But that's the standard procedure. It is not. Verification of checking every single date, every title, it meant that people who actually wrote the article by using a secondary source, we checked that secondary source, the original secondary source against the thing that they quoted. And they're almost always wrong. They're almost always misquoted. People don't quote properly. They see what they see. When they write articles, you mean? Yep. So these were adopted as course... No, nope, not at all. It was all secondary material, all used for libraries. So that was the market. Yep. And these are cloth-covered hardbacks. Yep. How many of them were there? 24. Okay, there they are. And uh, obviously it didn't lose money. Once we were into it, once we had mapped out the initial 20 volumes, 10 poetry, 10 fiction, and once we assigned all the articles, then we were into it. Didn't matter if they were going to make money or not. You'd already we committed to... Yeah, uh, we had to support the activity. Ultimately, they made money, but in a way that we didn't expect. And that was? The series was completed about 1993. First volumes were published probably in 81. Long-term project. Yeah, yeah. like any reference work, it, it went longer and cost more than we expected. In 1985, we more or less stepped out of publishing literary criticism, partly because we had done everything we wanted to do. You set the groundwork. We've done 35 volumes of Canadian fiction studies. These are individual books about individual novels. For example, if you What, they were a cut above Cole's notes, I'm assuming? All, far, all written by really good academics. The Wars. And this is a Reader's Guide by Lorraine M. York. And if you read any part of it, you'll find it's intelligent, constructive criticism about that book. It's a great thing to crib from if you had to write an essay. But we did 35 of these, and then we did a whole bunch of Canadian biography series. And the Canadian biography series included stuff like Michael Ondaatje, the first biography of Michael Ondaatje. Just literary, or? Mostly literary, until the early, what, 92, 93. And we said to ourselves, why are we just doing literary? What's that about? Yeah, you're cutting off your potential market, no question. Did somebody put a gun to our head and say, you must produce work on Canadian literary subjects. Yeah, but obviously it's your field of interests. But hey, then the light went on. Or did it? The light went off at the libraries. In the recession of the late 80s and early 90s, library budgets were cut pretty sharply. And the kind of buying that we had seen before, especially from publics and high schools, began to diminish. So we knew that it seemed that the library market couldn't support the kind of books that we were doing. So what else could we do? The options were we could go out of business saying we have done what we have done what we intended to do. We could stay in business and suffer, try to figure out how to, how to do this. Or we could change the basic kind of books that we did. Well, you could appeal to the general public directly. Yeah, we yeah. could appeal to the general public. So what we did was, we stumbled across... Ah, great stuff. <laughs> Katie Lang, Carrying the Torch, by William Robertson. You can see how lousy that cover is. And this is the second cover, which is slightly better, but not much. And what we discovered was that there was a public demand for a book about K.D. Lang. You discovered that prior to publishing it or after? More after than before. <laughs> Leading with your chin. What had happened was that we typically would publish 750 or 1,000 or 1,250 copies of a book, that kind of range, for anything we had done. 
of literary criticism. You're telling me that the library market was on the wane, yes. so now you're expanding your offering to include pop culture? Any kind of culture that was Canadian. We still believe that we are Canadian and that we had to do Canadian material. That gun was still pointed to our head. Self-pointed, but still pointed. It's a bit like the literature. A bit like the literature. We had hooked up with an American distributor. Yeah, because she's popular down there. Not in the uh, beef producing states. No, no. Uh, and he had his sales reps out there, and the sales reps came back. And at that time, in the early mid-90s, there were a lot of gay and lesbian stores in the United States specializing. Of course. They weren't all swallowed up by Barnes & Noble or Borders. So every time you would go into a gay or lesbian bookstore and say, I've got a biography of Katie Lang, they said, we'll take a whole whack of these things. And every time he came back to us, he said, well, we now have 3,000 advance orders. And we went, holy shit, how could that be? And then he came back and he said, we've got 5,000 advance orders. And, then he, and ultimately, we sold 21,000 copies of this book, where we had never sold 1,500 copies of any other book ever. Isn't that correct? That's a bit of an eye-opener. It was. It yeah. was. Great. So it was K.D. Lang. That, that was the sort of the breakthrough. And then what? Did you focus on other gay, lesbian... A bit. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, why have we restricted ourselves to Canadian writers? Why don't we do other Canadian cultural figures? So then... Elvis Stoiko? <laughs> might have been a possibility. I have to turn the clock back. We met John Metcalf, late 70s, early 80s. He had been published by Oberon, mostly up until that point. Ottawa publisher, yeah. He approached us... And he said, how would you guys like to publish me and Hugh Hood? And we said, sure, good idea. What do we know? We never publish fiction. We figured we could sell anything. So we took him on, and we did General Ludd, really lousy cover. We did Hugh Hood's Non-Genuine Without the Signature. And then they brought along Leon Rook. And for three years, we did Clud, Rook, and Metcalf. We published whatever they gave us. And by about 1984, when we had Shakespeare's Dog, under contract. Governor General's award winner. Governor General's award winner. I took a look at this, since I was more the money guy, and I said, we're losing our shirts on this stuff. Distribution costs are huge, sales costs are huge, returns are coming in, we're not collecting our money promptly. If we continue to do this, we'll drive ourselves out of business. So we stopped publishing fiction in 84, and didn't pick it up again until well into the 90s, until we felt more financially comfortable. You had to go to nonfiction to get some financial stability before you could take more risks and do yes. something more creative then. Yeah, I think right. that's fair. So then we swing back to the mid-90s again. The big crisis occurs in 95, and the crisis is that the federal government is running a huge deficit. Paul Martin comes in and says, we're slashing programs. Same year, Mike Harris gets elected, Premier of Ontario. So not only is our federal grant chopped, our Canada Council grant chopped, but in Ontario, he closes immediately the Ontario Publishing Centre, which had been responsible for granting us money, chops the Ontario Arts Council by about 42%, and eliminates the Ontario Development Corporation, which had a loan guarantee program that we were involved in, which meant that the bank got to call our loan. So it was a huge crisis, and there was no warning. No one said to us, you have 12 months to figure this out. I don't know if you remember what Mike Harris did. He just came in and went, that's it. Common sense. Common sense. So the problem then was, it was existential. Do we stay or do we go? Because under these conditions, we can't continue to publish. The decision was made to go ahead. It was very difficult. The guy who was working, I had one guy working for me in my office, and Robert had one person. I told him that I couldn't see how I was going to pay him in four months hence, so he should go out there and find a job. What I did was I said, if we're going to do this, and if we're going to sell books, then forget Canada, 
Forget Canadian culture. Let's talk about the world. And so the first book we did like that was this book. The Duchovny Files. He's American, eh? He certainly is. Although, again, we mentioned it's filmed in Canada, so there's a bit of a Canadian feel to it, yeah, but still. And if you take a look at the photo section in the middle, you'll see it's the first time we actually did a color section. Yeah. Isn't he gorgeous? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got him topless here, too. Oh, nice hairy chest. Yeah. yeah. And we had things in that book, like the X-Files drinking game, and an episode guide to the show, and a biography of David Duchovny. Brilliant. Well, isn't it ironic that your own government pushed you into <laughs> doing something that was not un-Canadian, but certainly not Canadian? It almost pushed you to grow up. Well, that would be a conservative point of view. The unfortunate thing, <laughs> in a way, your success proves their point, doesn't it? The interesting thing about this book is it sold relatively well in the States. And at this point, relatively well for us meant ten or 12,000. But we sold about 10 rights into various countries. The Italian version has him on the cover with his shirt open. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he's got a bit of Italian in him. And this is the, uh, the Polish edition. The edition that did the best turned out to be the British edition. You sell the rights outright or did you get a uh, percentage? The book has no author. There's an author listed. Oh, so it goes directly to you then. But the biography was written as a piecemeal thing. The episode guide was done by our intern and I did all the rest including the photos. So when our agent was over in Frankfurt, he rang up and he said, I've got a really big offer from Transworld, which was a random house company. What was a really big offer? 20,000 pounds. And we said, take it. So we did. And I thought, those guys are right out of their mind. No, they weren't. They sold 32,000 copies in the UK. They banged it through for the fall. They were very quick about it. That said to me a couple things. One, we can make money selling books into the world market. I have enough commercial sense to be able to handle this properly. And we've got enough venues now so that we can distribute it widely, whether in rights or in print. And we can put a package together like this. That must have felt pretty damn good. It was like looking back on what you were doing. Why didn't we do this sooner? No, that didn't occur to me. What did occur to me was that we had the ability of broken ground on doing bibliographies and scholarly works. We had a pretty good idea about how to do books that were serious. And this was a good example, which was done a couple years later. Muddy Waters, The Mojo Man by Sandra Tews, but even more impressive, The Forwards by Eric Clapton. Yeah. Great cover, too. Pretty good cover. All I should have done was I should have embossed that, that gold down there. First of all, it's got a 48-page photo section organized chronologically, tracing Muddy's life. And no one had ever done that before, right to his gravestone. Isn't that great? And then all our bibliography skills went into the discography. Utilizing what you've got. Yep. It's sort of transferable from literature to music to art, I guess, too. Although, yes. I don't know if you've done uh, that. We have done some, yep. So That's these two idea. books stand out to me as books that opened up the door and said to us, we can sell these elsewhere and we can do quality books and we can get them into the U.S. market. Just getting back to that irony, it took government slashing funding for you to grow wings, didn't it? In order for us to think about ourselves as a world trade publisher, yes. Well, I'd like to change gears at this point, if I could. Change away. I want to talk about your output from the perspective of a collector. It seems to me that the Coveney title and this Muddy Waters title would be, just in terms of how important it was to the press, interesting books to get a hold of. What would you advise the prospective collector to do? You asked me whether we had a bibliography of ECW titles, and the answer is no. A lot of our books are out of print, as 
would be the case with anything. Because the runs were pretty short. The runs were short. In the case of a book like The Muddy Waters, it's out of print and we sold about 18,000 copies. Because lots of them are around, but there's none available directly from our warehouse. But why would you collect the books? You're not going to collect a one copy of each of our books. Well, you might. That's a bit ambitious. If you're crazy enough, you might. I like the idea of collecting a 10-year period of the essays on Canadian writing. Yeah, it's worthless. It's not worthless. <laughs> what do you mean it's worthless? You could say a period during which Canadian literature came of age, let's say. I mean, that's what collecting is about, is making the case <laughs> for what your passion is. If you go after it, then retroactively you make the case. But anyway, so you're telling me that it's a stupid enterprise to collect anything that you've produced? If you want to collect something, and you want to collect a press... Now, you collect publisher's history, so you can't call this a stupid <laughs> enterprise. Every collector, whether it's of stamps or mugs or snuff boxes, mm -hmm. has their own stupid predilection. You don't know why people collect snuff boxes. Why did they do that? It strikes me as inane. People who collect cars, people collect houses, people collect glasses. Who knows what people collect? Husbands. Husbands. I collect books about publishing because I find it fascinating to read about my forebears. That's why. In the same way as I would probably read books about the Davids of Romania, if I could find such a book. Okay. <laughs> people like to read that stuff. In this case, because I've been intimately involved with virtually every ECW book, I know their foibles, I know their weaknesses, I know their strengths, I know what I would like to reread, but I certainly wouldn't collect it. Why not? I would collect within a certain area. Mysteries. We now have about 40 mysteries. So I would collect the music books. And how many of those are there? 30, 40. Is there a common look to them or not? No, no common look, but the common area is contemporary music. Say from Muddy Waters on. Not too much earlier than that. What book do you think is the most beautifully designed? I mean, you've won a couple of Alcuin Awards, won right? Won a bunch. And a bunch of other awards as well. Design awards. So that would be an interesting collection. You're not going to believe this, but these very most recent books, I think that's a brilliant cover. This is the MMA Encyclopedia. It's lovely, isn't it? It's and the nice back cover is glossy. Well. It's sort of a, a grayish, smooth ish light card stock but the actual photographs are shiny and the skin of these fighters is dripping i think that's a great cover design it's also a great interior design for a reference work now we were talking earlier about reference works this is an encyclopedia this is very close to our roots but what we do the mma encyclopedia it happens to be about mixed martial arts which is huge these days it's not about stephen leacock but the same principle applies going with your strength in this case, yes. People who tend to buy those books are often poo-pooed as the least literate in our society. I interviewed Richard Charkin. He runs Bloomsbury, and he collects a very famous series of cricket books. And they've been going for a hundred years. You know, it's got all the statistics for all the cricket players. They're bright yellow covers. He had a whole shelf full of them. So is that an annual, or will it no. be? one-off encyclopedia that you'd have to update every five years or so. Yeah. Okay. So you asked me which books I think are, are well-designed. I think that's a really well-designed book. Therafields, The Rise and Fall of Lee Hindley Smith's Psychoanalytic Commune. This was a book that I'd always been looking to doing, but never found any way to write it. And finally, the writer approached me. It's a book that anybody who was involved in Therafields, which at one time had 35 houses in the annex and four farms in Mono Township, any of those people would love to read the history of this therapeutic community, which fell apart in the early 80s. But I think it's a very nicely designed book. 
jacket designed by Gordon Robertson, who's an iconic Canadian book designer. So if you ask me what, what's your design, I can go through the list and I begin to pull out books and I say to you, isn't that an unusual design? Not for the uh, 40s or 50s it's not, but for now it is. Yeah, it's pretty startling on a bookshelf when you're looking at all your mysteries. Dead Politicians Society, <coughs> a Claire Bengal undercover novel. First novel. And it will be a series. Yes, her second one's in. So there you go, there's, a, there's something to look at. Did that win any awards? No, it's only been out about two months. The point is that in looking at books that are well designed, I'm going to have difficulty finding books through about here that yeah. are not well designed. Not like you did with the early ones. Well, why is that? Part of it is we're working with a wide range of designers now, like Gordon Robertson. And part of it is technological. We're able to send around PDFs and people say, I like this, I don't like that. And then we send it around to the sales reps and they send it around to the bookstores and the author sees it, everybody weighs in. And you may get lowest common denominator, but what you usually get is highest common <laughs> You get consensus around a cover that everybody says that's the best cover. So mysteries, you'd say, would be a good one. Yep. Music books. Yep. Wrestling books. Golf fighting books. Okay. You've yep. done boxing. A few, not much. Doesn't okay. sell well. What else? Canadian culture writ large. The Fairfields book is an example of that. Alternative a, culture. Sometimes, not always. Books about Canadian theater history. That kind of territory. You mean you've got more than one book in Canadian theater history? Yes. Although ECW stands for Essays on Canadian Writing, it also stands for Entertainment, Culture, and Writing. Yeah, and it stands for anything you want it to stand for. Any other collecting ideas? The idea of collecting your bibliographies. Those are kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's a uniform look to the ones that you did in, in the, the 80s. Yeah, that was a series of have you Do you still have some of those in the warehouse, or that's all sold out? We have a few. Interestingly, I think, the first one we did... The Annotated Bibliography of Canada's Major Authors 1. And then when we reprinted, we went to the standardized version of the cover. Oh, I see. So the first one's the only one that's out of the standardized series. Hey, that's, that's the one you want. That's the rare one. And they're all printed, in the first instance, by the Porcupine's Quilt, on 70 pounds Zephyr Laid. And they were sold. They were on Buckram, up to very high standards. Because they were built to last. Because I thought Tim was a great printer. And Tim is a great printer, but he stopped doing third-party printing. So instead of printing with Tim, we print now the, the smaller run stuff with Kochev's. And so Stan, for example, printed the George Murray book. It's a question of excellent printing, excellent black, excellent paper, everything first rate. Yeah, backup's not a problem like it used to be. What do you mean backup? When you print and you take a look at the two pages up in the light and the two lines come through, yeah. yeah. Books printed by the Porcupine's Quill for ECW, I mean that's interesting and so is the Coach Out Press as a subsection if you want to get that finicky. If you want something really hard to do, collect all of the translations of all of our books. We have a bunch of them over there. These are all the rights that you've sold. Yep, and we don't have them all. And very often the foreign publishers simply don't send us a copy of the book. There's a few Chinese or Japanese. Yep. That would be a very difficult job. That's pretty sadistic, actually, <laughs> or masochistic. Well, thanks. Is there anything you want to leave us with? I mean, you've left the books, which is a wonderful legacy, but what, what about parting thoughts or advice to people who are, have an interest in your press or words of wisdom? I would say there are a couple of misconceptions. One is that we published the wrestling books in order to pay for the poetry books. That's not true. We want to make money at least break even on all the books we do. And we devote the same amount of attention to the wrestling books as we do to the poetry books as we do to the fiction. 
so that if you take a look at the covers, they're, in my mind, equally good right across the board. And the same thing applies to the editorial standards and the proofing and the quality of overall production and to the marketing of these books. So George Murray's book, which maybe will sell five or six hundred copies of. That's it? Yep. Seriously? Yeah, I think so. I don't think so. I think you're going to sell more than that. Okay, we're selling 800. It's not a big deal. But we're not going to sell 18,000 as we did, say, with the Muddy Waters. But we've toured him. Toured him in Ontario, and yeah. he's, go he's going out west. So we expended money on a book that we know is not going to give us a return based on based on that expense. So that's one thing. We because you think it's an important book. Yeah, and we try to do equally well with all our books. The other, I think, misconception, although this is perhaps my own misunderstanding of how people see us, is that people think that we publish all kinds of different things, that we're a really wide-ranging publisher. But we only publish in about six or seven territories, genres. And if you say pop culture and fiction and poetry and serious nonfiction, you pretty well covered everything. We don't do romance and we don't do travel books and we don't do cookbooks and we don't, you know, there's a zillion things that we don't do. But within the range of pop culture, we can do books about TV stars or books about wrestling. Anything where there's a fan base is the kind of book that we like to do. So we do have a focus. And that being said, the focus is really a function of the people who work here. And if you came to work here, for example, it's not an invitation. It's okay. And we, <laughs> and we said to you, so Nigel, what kind of books do you like to do? What kind of books do you like to read? And you would say, I like to read books about uh, doors. I like to read books about books. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but if you said, I like to read books about doors, a better example. Okay. I was talking to a guy yesterday who's a book designer, and he's working on a book for Robert Rose of folding handkerchiefs. Hundred different ways to fold a handkerchief or a napkin, and I thought to myself, <laughs> that seems like an odd book. And he said that Robert Rose had gone to Frankfurt and he sold ten foreign rights on this book already. It's a fan base. It's a fan base. So, whoever we hire who's going to be an acquisitions editor, the question is, what do you like to read? What do you want to acquire? What do you have passion for? And I personally don't care what it is. The person has passion for it. They do a good, commendable job and they produce it well and market and distribute it well, come on in. So that's why the genres tend to change. The genres don't tend to change because the acquisitions editors have been around for at least 12 years <laughs> each. <laughs> but if we hire somebody new, at some point, they will acquire in different areas. But everybody's passionate about the books they do. And really, I mean, without being cliche, that's what life's about, isn't it? That's what success is about, enthusiasm and passion. I think. Well, thanks for uh, sharing your enthusiasms about your passion. Thanks for asking. I've been speaking with Jack David, who is the founder and president. And publisher and co-publisher. Of ECW Press, based in uh, Toronto, Ontario. Thanks again. Thanks, Nigel.